Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and I'm happy to be here with you so together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we'll wrap up our overview of compassion, and that will include some reflections on Tonglen, which comes from a powerful ecology of practice that can transform our lives and the work we do with any of the medicines of the world. Tonglen is in some ways a variety of compassion training, really. And so if we integrate it with the, the kind of compassion training we focused on last time, the uh, traditional practice of the immeasurables, if we integrate that with Tonglen, it makes for an incredible medicine that benefits each of us as well as benefiting all beings. Today we continue from our last contemplation, so that means this is part two of the most important training we can have to empower our work with the medicines of the world. We emphasize that we need a holistic approach, as usual, but we focused on a common ground, a spiritual commons, that can allow us to begin to cultivate the holism we need, and the part that we focused on is compassion training. Since compassion is a skill, and since compassion goes totally together with wisdom and beauty, we need practice and insight in order to properly understand and eventually understand the meaning of compassion and to be able to employ it, to make it real and effective in the world, because it's powerful. So it has this great potential for efficacy in our lives and in our world, but that takes some work on our part. To the extent that we lack wisdom, we also lack love, compassion, and beauty. And to the extent that we lack love, compassion, or beauty, we also lack wisdom. Now, beauty here signifies in part the mind of beauty, which is the mind of meditation, and a kind of beauty of the soul, uh, our, our grace and our presence. So the inner beauty that we can see in a highly cultivated person, if we've ever been in contact with someone who's done a lot of work on themselves, we sense that inner beauty, that radiance. And so we have to become wise in order to become fully compassionate, and thus, in order to truly understand compassion, we have to have wisdom. Compassion cannot exist without wisdom and discernment. We tried to begin cultivating some level of discernment in our last contemplation by contrasting compassion with empathy. And now we can deepen our discernment by contrasting compassion with empathic distress or empathy distress. As we noted, empathy distress presents challenges for all of us we encounter suffering on a fairly regular basis, even if it's just news of climate catastrophe, gun violence, war, uh, crazy decisions by the Supreme Court, something in the political circus, a whole host of symptoms of conquest consciousness kind of impinge on us on a regular basis. And so that, that can start to trigger this empathy distress response because it's repeated over and over and over again. Some of us may have family members, friends, maybe even a life partner who struggles with a chronic form of suffering. Maybe it's a, a long-term illness or, or it, it could be um, something from their past that haunts them and continues to 
produce anxiety and depression, distress of various kinds. So anything like that can produce empathy distress in us. And we can also recognize, as we did last time, how much this matters in particular for care workers. Because when our professional work involves consistent exposure to significant suffering, so just a regular, maybe it's 20, 30, 40 hours a week, maybe more, where we are confronting people in pretty serious or significant suffering, then it can create burnout and other symptoms of suffering in us. So we could say almost especially for care workers of all kinds, and we mentioned that includes therapists, teachers, veterinarians, parents, nurses, doctors, and anyone working with the medicines of our world, maybe as a facilitator, or maybe as someone who's just going to try to find their way to healing by working with those medicines, we want to give all of those people a sense of how compassion differs from empathy in terms of the distress we can experience when we're stuck in the empathic response. So it matters for all of us, because any of us can get burned out, but, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that too, the, the, the different layers of that. Now, as a reminder, we can't cover every aspect of compassion that would benefit us, and it's important to emphasize that compassion really is an important medicine for all of us and that it doesn't stand alone. Our practice of compassion should arise as an aspect of a holistic philosophy of life, and it can work wonders if we engage with it in a good way. As for empathy distress or empathic distress, we can define that as an aversive, depleting, and ultimately self-centered reaction to the suffering of another being. This experience of empathy distress gives rise to a desire to withdraw, to escape, as a way to protect ourselves. So we could call it a self-protective reaction to suffering in other beings. Compassion, on the other hand, is an empowering, nourishing, nurturing, and self-transcending response to suffering. It features a benevolent feeling of love and care, warmth of heart. It arises in a basic space of positivity of mind and heart, and it gives rise to natural and immediate desire to help. There's an energy of engagement. Now let's consider some of those contrasting elements. I tried to to think them through in some sort of parallel fashion, so that we could look at the way that we contrasted these two. Empathy distress, we said, is aversive and depleting. Compassion is empowering, nourishing, and nurturing, both for ourselves as the one practicing compassion and also for the one for whom we experience that compassion. So it it can be empowering and nourishing and nurturing to both of us. And it arises within a space of positivity. Compassion has a never-give-up quality to it. Empathy distress is ultimately self-centered. Compassion is self-transcending. Empathy distress is reactive. Compassion is responsive. Empathy distress 
provokes a desire to escape, and compassion evokes in us a willingness to stay, a willingness to engage, a sincere wish to help. It's a passionate engagement. The capacity to stay on the razor's edge of our lives and to engage with whatever arises is an integral part of a holistic philosophy of life. We could say we don't have a spiritual life without the cultivated capacity to go to the places that scare us, to let go of what we cling to, and to help even those we think we cannot help. And that includes ourselves. Because often we find ourselves the biggest lost cause on the planet. The, the single person too screwed up to help. We, that's how we sometimes think of ourselves. Everybody else has got a shot at being happy and wise and whatever it might be, but I do not. That's how we sometimes relate to ourselves. And compassion teaches us how to cut through that delusion, to dissolve that delusion about ourselves. So we need self-compassion as well as compassion for others. It's all together. Compassion addresses suffering wherever it arises. If it seems to arise, quote-unquote, over here, then that's where we address it. If it seems to arise, quote-unquote, over there, in some other being, that's where we address it. So a holistic philosophy of life, it teaches us how to walk this razor's edge, which is inherently precarious and uncertain in, a, in a, a kind of deep way. There is a precariousness to life, an uncertainty to life, and so being on this razor's edge is challenging, but we, we learn to stay on that edge, at that edge, and engage, participate in the whole of life, the whole of the great mystery. Because wisdom is no escape. We're not going to escape her. Sophia, wisdom, she is everywhere. We're not separate from her, and she can take the form of a medicine or a poison. She can take the form of a wave or a shark. And so we learn to stay on the razor's edge and see how those forms develop. And this learning to stay that compassion helps us to practice and make real, this opening of our capacity for engagement, comes with a surprising consequence, something counterintuitive to our own ignorance, and that is the following. As we practice, we find out that our perception and our discernment can increase while our suffering decreases at the same time. And we really have to sit with that because our habitual reaction is a deep, deep habit. Our habitual reaction is to withdraw from pain and to try to get out, to try to distract ourselves, to try to avoid it as much as possible. But one of the most important sets of findings in our contemporary neuroscience is that a person with training from a holistic philosophical tradition doesn't have to react like that. We can take a totally untrained subject, and then we can take a person with even relatively fragmented training, as long as it derives from some holistic philosophy of life where they really worked out how to, how to do it. But we can take that trained person, and then we inflict pain on both of them, the untrained person and the person with training. 
And what we find is that in the untrained person, when they experience pain, their perceptual centers may effectively start to close down, and at the same time, their suffering increases. That's what we find when we look at their brain in various ways. But the person with some training, maybe meditation training or compassion training, their perceptual centers open up. And yet, they are far less bothered by the experience. With proper training, we can become far more aware while we suffer far less. And in the ideal case, we simply stop suffering altogether, even though we may still experience pain, relatively speaking. And we see this in the natural world, too. Many beings in the natural world teach us about this. And maybe we can go into some of that. And right now we're thinking it through, though, because of the fact that compassion training is certainly about harm reduction, which is a, a, something that people say working with various medicines of our world are very concerned with. It doesn't matter what it is, even if it's talk therapy as a medicine. We want harm reduction. We don't want to have unnecessary harms. Of course, we have to be careful that then we take away all possible risks because we, life is a risky affair. But obviously, we want to reduce harm and certainly reduce any ethical violations. And so if we're concerned with reducing harm for people working with any of the medicines of our world, compassion training clearly can do that. But then it helps us to go even beyond harm reduction because, of course, that's what we want. And compassion reminds us that it's not just about harm reduction, it's about mutual liberation, mutual illumination, mutual nourishment, and mutual liberation of all beings, not just one person working with the medicine. And all of this has the most practical aspects to it on a personal, interpersonal, and global scale. For instance, empathy distress could be one source of what people refer to as toxic positivity. If we don't know our capacity to turn toward and work with our suffering or the suffering we encounter in other beings or in the world, then we may pretend that we have no suffering in us at all and also pretend that there's none in the world or none that we have to worry about for whatever reason. And then we may also try and keep away anyone else who doesn't similarly deny their deepest suffering and the suffering of other beings and the suffering of the world. We don't want to hear it. So we don't want anybody around us who will go there. And the reason we don't want to hear it is that we don't know how to handle it. We don't truly and intimately know our capacity to work with whatever is arising, including something that could be incredibly difficult. And so the ego says, look, I don't know how to handle one more negative thing. I can feel it. The soul can feel that the, this, there are a lot of problems. But I don't want to hear about that. I'd rather hear something superficial but seemingly positive. As long as it's got a positive message, then I don't even want to think about it critically. You know, so I don't want to hear climate doom. I want to hear that Elon Musk is going to save us with Tesla. And it doesn't matter whether or not there are serious problems with electric cars. I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear that we've got this. And the ego really starts to avoid engaging with anything substantial that comes with a challenge. It doesn't want to engage with any aspect of the world that might come with something 
that it feels is too difficult for it to face. Now, in our relationships, if our friends and loved ones don't know how to take good care of their suffering or even our suffering, then we can begin to engage in various forms of avoidance and even subtle or overt kinds of dishonesty because we don't want to trigger them and or because they don't want to trigger us. If we know a friend or loved one can't handle discomfort, if they've taught us that, then we will try to keep all the discomfort at bay. We'll try to keep it away from them. But then, of course, we ourselves end up living in some kind of delusion, and so do they. We're just pulled into a delusion together. And it might start enabling all sorts of behaviors too, right? Because instead of the difficult thing, let's go have a drink. Now think about how all this relates to an ethics of consciousness. What is our ethical obligation to show up for our loved ones in a way that helps them? So if our, our style of consciousness, our, our style of relating, and if the kind of quality or states of consciousness that we tend toward, if some of those states are helpful to our friends and also even to strangers and to other beings, and others that we might fall into are harmful or unhelpful, lead to delusion, lead to bondage, and so on, what's our ethical obligation to start practicing the more skillful states? Do we owe that to the people we love? What states of being actually help the people we claim to love? What states of being help the world that we all depend on together? So therefore, what states help total strangers? What states help non-human beings? What states of being in ourselves can actually help the earth as a whole? And it would seem that m many of us would have sensitivity to this because many of us have had probably friends or even parents or partners, life partners, who regularly showed us that they couldn't deal with challenges. Every challenge was like a nervous breakdown. And some of us know that we too have behaved like people, our partners or friends or parents or strangers could not rely on. We didn't know how to work with a challenging situation, and so we made things miserable for ourselves and those we supposedly love. And again, even strangers, that's not, we can't let that off the hook because don't we want to live in a world where we feel we could rely on one another? Where we were cultivating good states of consciousness, good states of being, so that peacefulness and friendliness and warmth of heart was natural to most of us in most of our encounters that it would be extraordinarily rare to experience something outside of that. It would be a safer world. We'd all feel better knowing that we could count on people. And non-human beings know this about us too. They know that we humans can be so unreliable. We lose our temper. We live out of fear and craving and clinging and hoarding and extracting. And in general, our way of being, our way of being conscious in the world, degrades the ecologies we all depend on. 
It's our style of consciousness that does this. Why does our culture not teach us how our own heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos actually function? And when we say actually function, and we're talking about something the size of the world or the cosmos or just larger ecologies of mind around us, we obviously do not need a set of equations. That's not going to help us participate in the functioning. We need to know how it functions, not talk about it as an object with a bunch of measurements, although that's not excluded from the dialogue, but the dialogue has to be focused on mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation. It has to be focused on creating a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty so we can have a world that flourishes. And we can be beings that we depend on and can depend on. I mean, we already depend on each other, but that we could become dependable. And the sort of strange thing is, we just spoke about the irony. There's an irony here, because it turns out that if we are trained, if we do get training in how our heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos function, if we get that training, then we find we can turn toward difficulties and not suffer. It's the not looking that hurts. Not turning toward the pain hurts worse than turning toward it. But our ingrained reactivity is to pull away from pain and begin to shut down our perception while ramping up our suffering. And this happens not just with our own experience, because we do it, there are things that we avoid, and then in our relationships with friends, partners, strangers, we start avoiding anything that's too sensitive. And then it also happens to the world, on larger scales and as a whole. Because globally, empathy distress, empathic distress, has serious consequences in relation to injustice, inequality, and climate collapse. When I taught at the university, it seemed to me that I couldn't ethically teach a course of any kind. I don't care what it was. I couldn't teach a course in today's context without some acknowledgement of things like climate catastrophe and various other forms of ignorance and injustice in the culture. But how could I possibly talk to young people about these issues without preparing them, without showing them their capacity to look at reality and to work with whatever is arising, however scary or overwhelming it may appear to the ego? And that's why, with these sorts of practices, I had students who had been to war. And I had students tell me that they had tried many things to deal with PTSD, and not until taking some philosophy course did they find the the path to healing. And one student, it was in a logic course. Not the kind of place you think you're going to find therapy for the soul, when you're suffering from PTSD. But this could be the basis for all teaching and learning. There's no reason why it couldn't be, because even if you're studying logic, it's stressful. You want to get the grade. You don't want to have to take the course over again. You've got all these things going on in your life. And no one has taught you how to work with your own heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, how they function. 
Everyone on the planet carries the consequences of human ignorance in their body now. Every being has it, and certainly every human. We all have the toxicity in us, and some of us have a lot more of it than others. And that's part of the injustice. But all of us can sense the degradation. There's no one toxin-free, probably. And we also miss our friends, the wild beings of our distant past. We miss them. We miss the vast forests, the clean rivers, lakes, and oceans. Oh, my goodness, once upon a time, we could go to the river and drink the wild water. We could just get in the ocean and not wonder if it was safe. Swim in a lake. All the things that really have become somewhat dangerous. I think we miss that. We miss the wolves and the wild horses roaming incredible areas of land, huge tracts of the land. Amazing populations of birds that once blocked out the sun as they migrated. My goodness, we just don't have that. We even miss the night sky somewhere in the soul because so few of us experience it the way our ancestors did. There's just so much light pollution. And we've lost meaning and magic. We've lost intimate participation in life in a wise way. Of course, people have law of attraction and so on, and there may be a feeling of participating, but it's not ecologically and spiritually attuned. And in general, there's just so much absence, loss, and disconnection that, that we can sense. The soul knows it. Something in us grieves. And we carry a real burden of suffering, most of us. And that's in addition to whatever terrible things happen to us altogether with this catastrophe. Because along with all the things we've described, we might have experienced childhood abuse, addiction, might have had to go to war, might have had to struggle in countless ways. And of course, it's all connected to conquest consciousness. It's just that there's this aspect of the world having fallen apart around us, and then there, that, there's how we have experienced some of the symptoms in ourselves too, you know. So we're feeling that major symptom that everything's been degraded by conquest consciousness. But then on top of that, well, that makes addiction more likely and that makes abuse more likely and so on and so on. And we carry a double burden in another sense too. There are things that we human beings are doing to the world, and then there are things that seem like they've been done to us. I mean, it's related to what we were just reflecting on, you know. So some of our suffering, in other words, comes from the fact that the soul senses how we all participate in this degradation. Or at least we could say the vast majority of us participate to some degree. Obviously, in the dominant culture, we're at the leading edge of the destruction. But no one wants to think of themselves as responsible for the situation we see around us. It's just too painful, at least from the ego standpoint. And we also have widespread addiction to the dominant culture itself. We have lots of addiction within the pattern of insanity. We all know that. Alcohol, opioid use, you know. But we're also addicted to the dominant culture. 
We've become stuck in this pattern of insanity. And we know, we know that we will have to give something up to heal the world. But no one wants to hear that, especially, I think, maybe in the U.S. There's a part of us that doesn't want to give up anything at all. And yet there's no wisdom tradition that tells us we can become wise without giving up ignorance. Every tradition talks about renunciation in some form. That process of becoming the phoenix in the fire. Now we're not talking about anything encumbered here. It's not about self-torture, becoming some naked ascetic running around. No, we're talking about that archetypal image of the phoenix. Letting burn away what isn't real so we can be reborn. We have to let go of things the ego clings to. But the ego, at an individual and cultural level, so to speak, clings to the patterns of ignorance that perpetuate the dominant culture. And for many of us, there's a fear about what we may have to let go of. Will it be our laptops, our cell phones, our trips to far-flung places? We don't want to let go of any of it. So we just decide. We'll decide. We still get to have cars, but they'll be electric, and then it'll be fine. Magic of Disney and electric cars will be free from having any negative impact on the world at all. And we just don't know that that's true. It doesn't seem to be true. We don't know what's going to make it to the other side of any kind of transformation we're going to experience, but we can pretty much bet that not everything is coming. We don't know what beings will get lost, and we don't know which of the things we cling to, elements of this culture, will have to go. And compassion teaches us how to face all of this, all of these things we're talking about on personal, interpersonal, and global levels. And it's all interwoven. That's why we, we can't be sure what's going to come with us and what's not. Because it's, you, when you give up your ignorance, you realize, as we talked about last time, ignorance is driving your life. So what happens when it goes away? And what would be left over, really? And compassion just helps us to know we have the strength to ask these questions. Compassion teaches us to see our kinship with all beings, including people who might be on the other side of our political or economic aisle. We start to directly sense how we're all in this together and how fundamentally the same we are, even though we're also utterly unique. And compassion of necessity includes the cultivation of wisdom, too. We said that before, but it's like something we have to continually say to ourselves. And the idea is that we get more and more skillful and creative about how to dissolve these challenges that we face and cultivate the whole of life onward in a vitalizing way. Let's consider one other aspect of compassion before we work our way into Tonglen, maybe almost as a way to start to transition. As part of a holistic philosophy of life, the cultivation of compassion goes completely together 
with the cultivation of other profound spiritual attitudes that are sometimes called immeasurables. Those immeasurables are peace, love, healing, or that's compassion, joy, and those are the traditional four, and we could respectfully add deep trust and great wonder. If we cultivate compassion cut off from these other attitudes, then we have a fragmented practice. So again, it's not an isolated thing. Compassion is already part of this larger ecology immediately, then there's another layer of a larger ecology, and on and on. These attitudes have the name immeasurable because both their extent and their benefits have no bounds. It's like saying that compassion and the related attitudes and skills are immeasurably good and they know no bounds. We can radiate it out all the way to every world in the multiverse because the, the cosmology that this, these practices come from ultimately sees a multiverse, a huge cosmos of many, many, many universes. And so these attitudes are themselves immeasurably good. And what's nice, since we have the capacity to resonate, radiate these attitudes out, they reveal our own immeasurable goodness. In general, we could say that we need our attitudes to accord with reality, and that we might suggest is a part of the ethics of consciousness, that certain attitudes sing in harmony with the great mystery, and certain other attitudes create dissonance in us and in the world because they lack attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. It's as if the cosmos is a great symphony and the immeasurables are the feeling of its music. When we train in the immeasurables, we allow our being to sing in harmony with the cosmos, to kind of vibrate in the, you could say, I know some people don't like vibration talk, but it's like that, you could say. We become a sacred song line in the mystery and we resonate with the whole. We resonate with these sacred powers and inconceivable causes that bring all things to be. Now, as we begin to sense this, we begin to realize that we need a practice of attunement. So when we recognize, wait, there is, there are certain attitudes that might be in alignment with reality, so to speak, and others that aren't. And so I must need to tune myself like a musical instrument so I can sing the song of the mystery itself. If I'm out of tune, I'm not going to sing in harmony with it. And then life is not going to go well. It's going to, I'm going to experience this dissonance. So I need training for heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos that attunes us all. Attunes me, if I'm engaged in my own path, and attunes me to this music. Attunes us all to the peace, love, healing, joy, deep trust, and great wonder that we ourselves are because reality itself is. These attitudes and the practices that cultivate them then become integral to our approach to the whole of life, including work with any of the medicines of our world. Now, we speak of them as a practice because they involve simple yet precise training and experiment and experience that together unleash these powerful attitudes of mind, these cosmic attunements of the soul. And when we practice them, 
we will really find how essential. That's what it takes. We have to start running the experiment. We're trying to give a picture here in our contemplation together, but we have to run the experiment so that we can see how essential these attitudes are to working skillfully with our lives and with any of the medicines of our world. And maybe we could say even especially so, in, in a relative sense especially, because it matters for all the medicines, but when we think of psychedelic medicines, we think of this expression of set and setting, you know, because the medicines are very powerful. And so then how do you help to, to orient the experience that you're going to have with them in a good way? Well, set and setting is what people say. But what is the set? It turns out we can train it. It's not just trying to set some narrow intention, but it's the whole set of mind, that is the style of mind. As we touched on a few times in talking about the medicines of our world, we talked about how they can bring up some challenging experiences. And compassion, along with equanimity, joy, Love, deep trust, and great wonder can help us to work with challenging experiences in ever more skillful and creative ways. And they can even head off the feeling of challenge before it arises. You know, because if if inside of us there's this really deep-seated recoiling away from something difficult, then something in us, when we're working with the medicine, is really staying away from anything that exceeds a certain threshold of danger. You know, so the ego is okay up to a certain point, but when the discomfort gets to be too much, then we could have a problem. And people can get, they can have difficult experiences that become problematic for them if they're not resolved. So we want to be careful here. And the idea is that compassion teaches you that you'll be able to work with, and as as you have confidence in your capacity to turn toward what's difficult, then when you work with the medicines, it's that much easier because you're not ahead of time starting to go into a negative space because the feeling of discomfort is arising, you see? Because if discomfort arises, then it, it can form a feedback loop where the medicine then takes us really into an uncomfortable, uncomfortable place. We could do all the work that, that we would want to do with that material, but without it having to feel so awful because compassion helps us to A, know we can turn toward what's difficult. B, know that we can liberate that energy. Once we do turn toward the difficult thing, we find that, wow, it's not as difficult as I thought it was going to be. And so then that keeps a basic space of positivity. Compassion is about touching this deep space of positivity and joy in ourselves, and then that becomes the container for whatever is arising. So ultimately... It's, it's really like tapping into, in a medicine analog, it would be like finding out that, that what MDMA can do for us, which is keep us in a space of positivity while we look at something difficult, and that's what allows that to happen. Well, we can learn that capacity ourselves. We don't need the MDMA to do that. It's not to say no one should ever use that medicine. It's to say that the medicine reveals a capacity that we have, which is what the cultivation of the immeasurables will also reveal, is what it's giving us. That's why they're immeasurably good, because they are as powerful as that medicine. In fact, more powerful, ultimately. It doesn't mean that we have to do it only with compassion, and we're not allowed to use the medicines. No, it's that when we integrate compassion and the other immeasurables with any medicine, we empower 
ourselves and the world in mutuality. And so we can cultivate these states, these immeasurables, knowing that they are ethically good and vitalizing and part of our healing. That these immeasurables themselves that are part of compassion training, that they are a powerful, powerful medicine. And that means that we can start to bring the medicine to our medicine work. If we want to work with horse medicine, then we can bring our mind and heart medicine to that work. We can bring love and compassion and peace and so on to the horse, to the horse medicine, to whatever kind of medicine we work with. It helps us to start to see that we can become the medicine. That's what compassion training does. And again, all of this relates to the ethics of consciousness. Because that's a, that's a vitalizing ethic of consciousness. To, be, to say, I want my style of consciousness to be a medicine for the world. That's a wonderful thing to think. As we make our way to discussing the basics of Tonglen, let's spiral back a little bit to the aspect of compassion that has to do with how the states of others affect us, whether working with the medicine or not. The states of other people sometimes affect us quite significantly. And when it comes to the states of others, some people may want to try to protect themselves, and and they may use protective herbs, protective stones, talismans, and so on. And if we feel the need to do that, we should do it. At the same time, in addition to those sorts of measures, and maybe in a very advanced case when we felt very confident and well-trained, we might even say in place of such measures, we can use the power of compassion to transmute the states of others from negativity to positivity. We don't have to just bounce that energy off as if we're using a shield against it in that kind of basic sense of protection, but we could learn how to actively transform the negativity into positivity in our own experience too. So when we feel angry, we can see that anger clearly and begin to learn how to liberate that energy. The way anger habitually arises, it's encumbered and it's unskillful and we could liberate that energy. The spiritual traditions teach us we can do that. And we need that kind of approach in our everyday life as well as in our work with the medicines of our world because we don't want to have to relate with our own child or our spouse or a friend as if they are someone we can't be around unless we wear a protective talisman. But their experience can affect us in very profound ways. And we don't want to simply take on their stress, their anxiety, their fear, their toxic positivity, or whatever their suffering is. We don't want to just take that on. Because if we take on any of their confusion or suffering, we become far less capable of loving them and supporting them in the best ways possible. And it would be great if we could just become totally liberated right now in this moment. So there you go. Right now, you could be liberated. It could happen. And if you are, that's wonderful because a person at the level of a totally enlightened being, a complete realized sage, 
probably becomes immune to negative states, as far as we can tell. That's what the wisdom traditions tell us, is these people are completely immune to negative states in others, and they're even immune to attempts to use psychic energies against them. And we can see this in the archetype of the Buddha, which gives us a beautiful image of the transformational capacity of wisdom, love, and beauty. When Buddha sat down under the tree and he began to wake up, enlightenment was very close, he was on that threshold, then Mara, who is like the matrix master, he launched a violent assault because he was worried. He didn't want anybody to escape the matrix, and so he sees Buddha's on the verge, and he launches this vast army of demon warriors. He actually did three different things, but one of them was this massive army, fierce, horrifying beings, and they launched thousands of spears and arrows and knives and everything flying at the Buddha. And Buddha's just sitting there peacefully under the tree and joyfully. And as all those weapons approach Buddha, they become transformed into flowers. And we see that same image, of course, in the matrix, in contemporary garb, and the bullets, and when Neo finally realizes what the matrix is, he realizes the true nature of reality, then the bullets can no longer reach Neo. So he doesn't have to protect himself anymore. There was a time when he had to run, and then he learned that he could dodge the bullets, but now he doesn't even have to dodge the bullets. He has seen totally into the nature of reality, and he's transcended the whole thing. So he doesn't need a shield or any protection. He's just changed everything. But most of us, of course, still have that awakened nature buried in us. And on this side of enlightenment, it's quite all right if we feel that we want to use our protection objects, our protective processes, whatever we use. And the wisdom traditions have a place for that too. So we're just basically arguing that this can be, or suggesting, this is not an argument in ordinary sense. Sometimes when philosophers use that word, they just mean that we're, we're exchanging thinking together, you know, that we're supposed to think together. And instead of argument, I, I actually like the word attunement. That's what I used to teach in logic courses. I would call it, instead of arguments, attunements, because we're trying to f- resonate with each other a little bit. So we've presented this attunement, this invitation to see that we could integrate whatever we're doing with training in the immeasurables. But the wisdom traditions really show us how we can deepen also our sense of how to engage in certain protective practices because what they will at least sometimes do is directly connect those protective processes that we engage in. They'll directly connect them to the magic of our own awakened nature. And so then it's quite holistic, and it makes for an opportunity, it's an educational opportunity, an opportunity for liberation. For instance, the Buddhist tradition turns the protective imagery into a vision of our own awakened nature. So as we use the image for protection, it also teaches us what we are, thus integrating wisdom, love, and beauty all together. So it's just a, it's that little bit more than just holding a stone that, that that might, in a certain sense, if we're naive about it. And of course, people can have very sophisticated ways of doing this. So if you do, that's you're already there. That's great. But sometimes we kind of have the feeling that if I hold the stone, it's protecting me. But this other kind of protective practice liberates those very same protective energies in us. 
so that we begin to see that we ourselves also are the protective energy, that we ourselves are the energy of compassion and wisdom and love and beauty and joy and peace. So this energy of awareness, we start to liberate it. And maybe one day I can record uh, some uh, of those meditations, at least one of them. There's one I really like that involves creating a magical shield around us, but we do this in a way that we can see our own enlightened energy and awareness. It's an image of our own awakened intelligence that does the work of transmuting the negative energies into positivity. And so we learn how to make the shield that Buddha uses when Mara attacked him, which was not like an ordinary physical barrier, but it was the energy of awareness with its infinite wisdom, love, and beauty that transforms negativity into positivity. And so we then find that we ourselves already are Buddha or Neo, you know, and so we can, we can, we can work with the matrix in a very skillful way. Perhaps the most important thing at the beginning with practices like this is to get crystal clear that we're not taking in any of this negative energy into our personal self, not into our body, not into our mind, not into our soul. And we can learn that when negative energy arises or it's directed at us, that we can redirect it into a transcendent wisdom, love, and beauty. It's like an infinite wellspring of wisdom, love, and beauty. And we send any negativity from ourselves or from others into that infinite wellspring, and it becomes transmuted into the very antidote that we need or that they need or that both of us need for healing and transformative insight. Now, some of this is described further at the Dangerous Wisdom Resources page. What we're talking about now, um, we've entered, when we're talking about transmuting or liberating negative energies like this, it's a little bit more in the Tonglen practices. So you can find out more about Tonglen on the Dangerous Wisdom website, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it here too, to at least give some sense of it, because Tonglen is very powerful, extremely relevant, for working with the medicines of our world. I think that will become clear as we at least give a sketch of it. Tonglen is an element in a holistic mind training practice. And we can learn the basics for the benefit of our own spiritual development and also for the sake of helping others. And as usual, we need to approach it with a holistic spirit. Of course, we keep saying that. And that's just because it's really important and that we're in a fragmented context. And so we need to engage with something equivalent to the mind training that belongs to Tonglen. And we can at least, though, begin to learn the practice that if we approach it with care and reverence, and, and we really do start to look for a way to have it be holistic. Now, we've spoken about how compassion practice can help us understand our capacity to turn toward pain, turn toward suffering, turn toward even our fear, our anxiety, our panic, we could turn toward it with genuine openness. Now, part of the holistic ecology that Tonglen belongs to involves a series of crystallizations of wisdom that we would learn and experiment with. And we would need to get, we would have to get teachings because the crystallizations by themselves 
there are different uh, arrangements of them, but you can find, say, 59 different crystallizations of wisdom. And by that, I mean, it's like a slogan. But it's so crystallized that we would need someone to explain the meaning to us, and then we work with it in our lives in a manner of experimentation and experience. And Tonglen would be part of that learning process, that experimentation and experience. So it's integrated to wisdom training. Wisdom, love, and beauty come together in this mind training curriculum. The practice of Tonglen depends on a special attitude. That attitude sees every moment as a gateway to love and liberation, insight and inspiration. And so that attitude helps us to welcome states even when, or sometimes even especially when, they have a, a great deal of energy in them. Sometimes when we experience something intense, especially if it feels negative, the ego just feels overwhelmed and wants out. It just wants it done. But the Tonglen attitude says, wow, this is a lot of energy. You know, maybe we're really angry or we're really afraid. We're really upset and there's just so much energy and the Tonglen attitude says, if all this energy could get liberated right now, if it could be, be channeled into liberation, then that would be a potentially huge satori or awakening experience. So let's put this energy to good use and turn it into medicine, into freedom, into wisdom, love, and beauty. And the basic idea is that suffering anywhere can become liberation everywhere. Tonglen also applies to positive experiences too. We can work with positive experiences with as much skill as we can when we're facing challenging experiences. A holistic practice is integrated like that and it's really important to work with positive experiences too. So, so again, it's not just about harm reduction, but it's cultivating positivity and it's about this potential for love and liberation. Now this Tonglen attitude, it seems obvious, doesn't it, that this can give us a lot of support when we work with the medicines of our world, not least because some of these medicines engage with people in a way that feels like they put a kind of pressure on the psyche so that things come to the, to the fore, thus allowing us to face them. With ayahuasca, for instance, the vine is often thought of as the principal teacher because the vine brings a person's issues to the fore, often via discomfort and a purgative energy. You know, it's not universal, but it's very common. Similarly, when the psychologist joined us here on Dangerous Wisdom, Leah Friedwoman, she spoke about helping people work with cannabis in this way, allowing the plant as a teacher to evoke from the psyche. Now, one way of talking about this is we could say that some of the medicines of our world can overcome the ego's defenses enough for a certain level of healing and insight to arise. They break up the habitual patterning that constitutes the ego's defenses, and those defenses include keeping certain things repressed or suppressed. And the ego can respond to the situation in a variety of ways. It's not just going to go away and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm done. 
Rather, the ego will reassert manipulation and control, often in the most subtle ways, because the ego is partly unconscious, so it can control things without our awareness. And then we won't see it happening. And that includes when it blinks out for a while. We talked about that. It's just another form of controlling the experience. The ego blinks out, and we may think we experienced enlightenment or some kind of profound state, and maybe it was really helpful in some ways. It's always good when we get a break from our ego, but there's a lot more potential. And that was our theme last time, all the things that we don't even know we don't know. In any case, the states and the experiences that arise when we work with the medicines of our world can be quite intense. And it seems like an ethical obligation to begin to learn together how to work with them ever more skillfully, including going to real teachers who can teach us how to work with our lives in general, our whole lives, including intense experiences working with medicines and intense or even somewhat mundane, ordinary experiences in our daily lives. How do we work with them? And how do we work with our suffering in general? However it arises, as an intense experience in daily life, as some kind of other extreme situation, such as working with a, working with a medicine, how do we do that? How can all of this become the gateway to liberation, mutual liberation? And that's part of, again, why we turn to a holistic philosophy of life, because it can help us answer questions like that. And if we don't enter that kind of holistic path, then we can end up just undergoing our life, you know, white-knuckling our way through everything, like we're going through an ordeal with no real education around it, no training on how we can get better at working with it so that really mutual liberation becomes a possibility. So we don't want to just get better for ourselves, but we want to get better at working with things in ways that benefit the whole community of life. And we need to begin to sense things on that scale, to participate in the whole of life and not just follow our personal agendas. Now, following our personal agendas, we can figure out lots of things. It just tends to be in pieces and fragments of wisdom. You know, we figure out things like working with our breathing or beginning to experience the dialogue of the soul. You know, people may talk about feeling into their body or checking in with an inner knowing and many other sorts of things. A lot of fragments can emerge and they can be they can feel really wonderful, and we can feel like we have a nice big collection of fragments, tools. We say, well, I've got a lot of tools, but life is not a collection of tools or fragments. And we speak about these fragments in different ways, sometimes because we don't realize how much work has been done on these things in other traditions. And we can kind of stumble into some of these things for ourselves and discover, for instance, that we don't have to remain stuck in habitual patterns of thought. And things like that are wonderful. And at the same time, a holistic and comprehensive view is necessary so that we can all get better, better and better and better at unfolding the mystery, creating together and discovering at the same time, and cultivating the whole of life onward in the most vitalizing ways, you know. And so much depends on us now. And we can enjoy incredible benefits if we just will turn to the thousands of years of experimentation and experience we find in the wisdom traditions. You know, why try and reinvent the wheel? Well, we, are, we find a whole bunch of wheels that are beautifully made, they're ready to go, and not just wheels, but whole vehicles that will carry us along pathways 
that are well-known and yet still depend on our uniqueness to bring them to life in the present context. And as we learn and study, we get more skillful and we can start to notice some of the subtle ways that the ego is in control, how the doer is doing our lives, how it's white-knuckling things. And we can become also more aware of the larger pattern of insanity of the culture and more insightful and visionary about how to dispel that larger pattern of insanity and thus help the whole community of life. And we have to become sensitive to all this because spiritual materialism means we will take the spiritual principles and practices, even ones we think saved our life. We'll think, oh man, this made such a big shift, this was so important to me. And nevertheless, the ego and the culture begin to manipulate everything so that it doesn't go too far. So even if we have really good intention, the culture's working at it all the time, trying to co-opt it. And sometimes, as we've said before, we touched on this, that the ego can manipulate experiences that we have to the extreme of getting us to think we just don't need any more teachings. And we touched on the, the, the two of the ego's favorite ways to avoid love wisdom, either claiming love wisdom is too much for me or claiming I'm too much for it. You know, I, I don't need any more teachings. I know enough. And we need compassion for both aspects because we all kind of touch those both. And that also includes cultivating an awareness of and compassion for our fear, because we sometimes fail to understand the extent to which conscious and unconscious fear keeps us away from our own liberation. And for some people working with psychedelics and other medicines, it might prove helpful to listen to the first few contemplations in the Dangerous Wisdom podcast relaunch. They're, they're, there is like the first one, two, or three that you can find. And they focus on facing our fear of reality. We need a lot of compassion for ourselves and for each other in relation to the sheer terror that can seize us in the face of reality and its profound mysteries. I mean, we can get scared about just ordinary mundane kinds of things, you know, like I'm really scared to lose my dog, you know, like that's really frightening. But then there's this off-the-scale kind of existential terror that that is also there. And this kind of terror arises in the most sincere people who truly want to know the nature of reality and have even sought it out. And nevertheless, they can get seized by terror. In light of this terror, it seems actually kind of comical how gung-ho some people can get about things like psychedelics. And that gung-ho attitude allows them to present themselves both to themselves and to others as someone who really wants to know reality. And they might, you know, because first of all, all of us do. The, The soul wants reality. So every single one of us has an impulse toward reality. But when we don't understand and won't admit the unconscious dynamics involved, and we don't have any clue how the ego can take our hunger for reality and manipulate it into further delusion. And sometimes in our gung-ho attitude, maybe you've seen this in your experience, we can do something that seems very big, like taking a massive dose of psychedelics. And there's a name for that. People refer to it as a heroic dose, which apparently signifies that we must be very heroic to take so much medicine, that that's what heroism means. So we get to label ourselves a hero, even though we do it indirectly. I took a heroic dose, 
the translation is I am heroic and I did I, I demonstrated my heroism with this medicine. And we don't see that the ego is just not going to relinquish control so easily. And we we might just get really flooded with the experience. The ego wants credit for the heroism, of course, so it engineers this whole heroic dose scenario, knowing full well that it might experience beautiful visions that will fascinate it, and also knowing that if anything gets too intense, it will simply blank out. And that can leave people still with a sense that something very spiritual happened. And in a certain sense, maybe it did. In a certain sense, there was an encounter with the sacred, which is terrifying. But we weren't really able to to see through it. So there is, there does seem to be, and maybe you have encountered people like this, you know, this is not, we're not just making things up, but there are these certain streams of experience that happen that people can think they've discovered the great secrets of the cosmos. And sometimes they got glimpses of things ultimately too vast to metabolize. And so in some sense they did see a lot, and in another sense they saw very, very little because it was really not metabolized. And, of course, sometimes these, what we get is a pause in the habitual noise, and we can become enchanted by the silence and spaciousness that the wisdom traditions teach, not as the final aim, but really as the proper beginning. So the experience we have with the medicines of our world can be very much the possible beginning of our practice. And it's not always the most stable beginning either because it's really wobbly. A glimpse is, is not much and with, there's no framework there to really receive it. Then we're also kind of at a, at a loss. And so we don't want to mistake the end for the beginning as if we understand a lot more than we really do. And this can feel very deflating. We've touched on these issues before and if we think we know a lot or have achieved a lot and then the wisdom traditions tell us something that feels a little uncomfortably humbling and distinctly unheroic you know that's that's a, that's a deflating feeling and some of the wisdom traditions are also telling us well you know you're at a beginning because you you are using something you relate to as external to yourself in order to arrive at these states But overall, I want to be clear, we're actually trying to take a very optimistic attitude. Optimistic and realistic can go together. Sometimes when someone's trying to be realistic, if it feels deflating, then we think it's pessimism. But actually, there's no real pessimism here. I really think there's a, a great deal of confidence that we can have in our own wisdom traditions. And we can recall the words of David Dunning here. He said, remember, quote, people tend to do what they know and fail to do that which they have no conception of. People fail to reach their potential as professionals, lovers, parents, and human beings simply because they are not aware of the possible. And once we let go of what we think we know, however convinced we may be about it, we can open ourselves up more fully to what we're not yet aware of as a real possibility for us. Not just an imagined thing, not just intellectual. There is much more potential in ourselves and in our world than the dominant culture will really allow us to believe. 
and we can break free from this pattern of insanity and realize possibilities we currently do not understand. And all of this relates with compassion because that's the proper place for our training to begin. If we want to find these unknown possibilities, this is where we begin. We can't just leap into intense states and potentials without good training. As we said before, we can't just go to teachers in a holistic lineage and demand entrance into wild states of mind. They're going to say, no, we need to talk about ethics. You need to start doing some practices to train your heart. And so we need compassion. We need compassion just because of this hunger we have and this struggle. And the dominant culture has made this extra challenging for many of us. The whole situation has just got this extra layer of ideology and dogma and confusion. And so we need compassion for our egoic manipulations, our fear, our desire to be heroic, our desire to know ourselves, the grief and trauma we carry, our need to heal. We need compassion for all of that in ourselves and others. We need equanimity too so that we neither crave nor cling to big medicine experiences, and so that we can touch a profound sense of peace that we can then allow to infuse more and more of our lives. We can see that peace just belongs to us. It's just our part of our being. We need all of the holistic practices related to peace, love, healing, joy, deep trust, and great wonder. And let's emphasize again that anyone working in a support role with psychedelics, in whatever capacity, but also if you're working with the medicine, surely, as we said, this just applies across the board, but I'm thinking in particular, if you are supporting somebody who's working with one of the medicines of our world, then the practice of compassion, which includes the immeasurables and the related practice of Tonglen and its holistic mind training, that can make a powerful and empowering impact on you and those you seek to support. So whether we work with these medicines as the one seeking healing and insight, or we work with them as one seeking to facilitate for others, this common ground can support us all. And in the end, we need to break down all the dualities here and sense our mutuality. In some situations in our lives, a practice like Tonglen or the practice of compassion and the other immeasurables might become the only thing we can offer someone. If someone is going through a really intense experience while working with a medicine, sometimes the best thing we can offer is the practice of compassion for them. And we might not have anything else, actually, and certainly nothing better. We don't have to say a word to them. And yet our practice can be so healing for them and for us. And we won't get caught in empathy distress. Instead, we open the possibility for insight for us and for the one for whom we're practicing or with whom we're practicing. As we said before, suffering anywhere can become liberation everywhere if we know how to work with it. Another situation like this arises when we go to someone's sickbed or even their deathbed. When my mother was dying, there was nothing I could do to stop her death. 
but I could practice compassion for her. And this kind of practice has concrete effects. It affected everyone in the hospital room, and it was a blessing to give my own mother the gift of that kind of presence in her final moments of this life. I've seen the powerful effects of these practices in so many situations. I've sometimes seen things that led me to feel like a born-again philosopher, because we can practice deeply and we can think we understand the practice, and then sometimes we witness things that seem so wondrous that we become a born-again child of Sophia. And the dominant culture trains us all to ignore, marginalize, repress, and suppress the magic of the world. Whereas these kinds of teachings, compassion, tonglen, mind training, these kinds of teachings and practices presence the magic of the world. That's why Buddha said this is the supreme miracle, instruction. Instruction is the supreme miracle. Now, we're talking about this, of course, in line with Tonglen. That's part of what we, we were talking about. And I wanted to just touch again on the nature of it and say, we're not going to go into a full explanation of how to do it. That's on the Dangerous Wisdom website. But it is, if that wasn't clear, part of this transmuting of negativity. And it's why we brought it up also in relationship to the idea of encountering difficult experiences. That's important because the Tonglen attitude turns toward anything that might happen in the context of our life and certainly in the context of working with the medicine as a possibility for liberation. And so therefore, it will help us to deal with the things that we've been touching here. You know, our desire to be heroic, our um, our fear, um, our experiences of discomfort. When anything feels big and energetic, the Tonglen attitude starts to open us up and say, ah, this, this is going to be interesting. And it helps us to really start to examine. And when we practice Tonglen or compassion, part of what they also do is show us the non-duality of what we could call self-regulation and co-regulation. That's the kind of terms that psychologists use. Uh, they may not talk about non-duality, but they will sometimes talk about how self-regulation and co-regulation go together was just a way to try to get at the the magic of our interwovenness. Some aspects of it seem a little bit less magical than others, but when we work with these practices, we start to get more familiar with and more intimate with the interwovenness of all things. Because the idea here is, at least in part, if I practice Tonglen or I practice the immeasurables, that we could view as a kind of self-regulation. I'm, I'm working with my own heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. I'm working with them. But when I do that near you, you will also benefit. Because of our interwovenness, that even, again, the psychologists have started to recognize. So a therapist can recognize that as they self-regulate, the client starts to feel better and starts to arrive at the insights where they were blocked. 
And one of the first dominant culture uh, scientific studies I remember seeing about this was done by Oman Lindenberger and colleagues. It was a fun one. I remember when it came out, it always comes to mind. I often talk about it. It's an open access publication, so you can find it on the web. It's called, here's the title. You'll, you'll always remember the first, <laughs> the first few words. Brains Swinging in Concert. Cortical Phase Synchronization While Playing Guitar. Okay, so the uh, subtitle is tricky, but the first part is funny. It's funny in part because the dominant culture tries to locate everything in brains, you know. So it's brains swinging in concert, not minds, not souls swinging. It's brains. And obviously they tried to take measurements from brains by putting electrodes on people's heads. And then we have the comp complicated words there, cortical phase synchronization. Synchrony happens spontaneously in a variety of systems. It's actually kind of interesting, the different places we may find it in the world as we look further and further with more sensitivity. In our own brains, to start with brains, you have d different regions, and those different regions can coordinate just by operating in the same frequency. Because you might think that they could only coordinate by sending messages back and forth between, say, the front part of your brain and how does it coordinate with another part, say, the back of your brain. Well, you could send messages from the front to the back and from the back to the front, but they can also coordinate simply by synchronizing their activity. And this also seems to happen between the brain and certain muscles when we perform certain kinds of tasks. So that was weird that people were finding that it wasn't just that a signal was traveling from the brain to the muscle, but that somehow the coordination was through the muscle fibers firing in synchrony with the brain. Okay, so now Lindenberger and colleagues showed that this can happen between two different people. That's really a super cool thing when you think about it. And the study used pairs of musicians playing a jazz melody together. The researchers uh, had these jazz musicians come in, they put the electrodes in, and they found that the brains of the musicians synchronized as they prepared to play, and also as they initiated the melody. So it wasn't just about the melody was playing, and then they kind of got synced up by playing the melody. It was as they initiated the play. And so that ruptures the habitual barriers between us. Right now, in fact, it's, it's rupturing it because the brain inside your skull is right now synchronizing with the brain in my skull at the time of this recording. That's what's happening. As you picture people playing music and you think about their heads with little electrodes stuck to them and they're sitting there in a laboratory and it's got white all over the place and they're holding a guitar and they're looking each other in the eyes and they're about to start playing you and I are syncing up because we're making that image in our mind. And that's in general how love wisdom goes. Our minds and hearts sync up with the minds and hearts of our ancestors. The minds and hearts and souls of the saints, sages, shamans, priestesses, and enlightened beings who have taught these powerful practices and visions and cosmograms and invited us to share in their insights, their wisdom, compassion, and grace. 
as we contemplate those teachings together, we synchronize with each other and with our wisest ancestors. So it's the dance of synchronicity right here. Now, since that study by Lindenberger, others have begun to explore the varieties of coherence between what we refer to as individuals, you know. We think there are these isolated and atomized individuals, but mind is ecological. And working with the medicines of our world involves a liberation into larger ecologies of mind, a practice, an engagement, a participation with larger ecologies of mind. Another scientist who's done work on this is Joy Hirsch. She's done some interesting work, including a demonstration of synchrony triggered through eye contact. When we gaze into each other's eyes in the right way, we can create synchrony between us. And in certain wisdom traditions of the world, teachers teach in part by silently gazing into the eyes of their students. Now, sadly, we find new agey versions of this in which somewhat confused people try gazing meaningfully into other people's eyes to show off how enlightened they think they are. And um, at one level, they will succeed in creating synchrony just because it's a natural phenomenon, not because they have enlightened powers. And we don't want to mistake the synchrony for a spiritual virtuosity or insight or wisdom that's not really there. But under the right circumstances, gazing into the eyes of a friend or our, our loved ones or gazing into the eyes of a deeply cultivated teacher, truly cultivated teacher, can facilitate healing and insight. If it's a meaningful thing. I, I think I, even when, when uh, Marina Abramovich, when she did the piece of just sitting there and looking in people's eyes, I think people had some interesting experiences just from that. And it's not because she's the next Buddha, or so, maybe she is, maybe she is enlightened, but... Anyway, I don't think it's because of that. I think it's just because it's very powerful. It can be powerful. And the point here is that we have access to the magic of the world right where we stand. We live in a participatory cosmos. And when we begin to radiate the luminosity of our nature and when our soul sings the music of peace, love, compassion, joy, deep trust, and great wonder, it affects all beings throughout the whole cosmos. When we work with the medicines of our world, including when we facilitate others in their encounters with these medicines, it makes a difference. When we can bring the energy of the immeasurables and the insight and skills from Tonglen and a holistic training of mind, heart, body, world, and cosmos, when we can bring that, it changes everything. Anyone working with the medicines of our world, and that includes anyone supporting, say, a psychedelic medicine process, and anyone working with psychedelic medicines in particular can benefit from this sort of training, compassion training overall, which again includes Tonglen and its holistic practices. And perhaps we will come to consider it an ethical obligation to teach people how to work skillfully with states of consciousness how to work skillfully with their suffering and with their joy. Because again, compassion practice is not just about our suffering, but it, it is also about that. But because it's the all the immeasurables and because compassion is interwoven with wisdom and love and beauty, then we're talking about getting in touch with our basic space of joy, the basic space of joy that belongs to everyone, 
And so we should begin to see this as part of education, that this should be central to education, that we should know how to work with our own heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos like this. It makes so much more sense to teach people as much as possible about their own mind and heart and body and world and their capacities as part of education. And then obviously now we have to say as part of preparation for working with any medicine that can manifest mind because we didn't get that training. So now if we're going to work with mind manifesting medicines, we better start getting some training about the mind first, not just to work with the medicine because the medicine in and of itself is not sufficient training for most of us. We need the training to approach the medicine. And we have to remember that Many medicines manifest mind. Horse medicine can manifest mind. Music can manifest mind. Dance can manifest mind. Whatever medicine we work with, shouldn't we know how our mind works, what its capacities are, what it can do, how it becomes most skillful, how we become most susceptible to insight, and how we make the best contribution to mutual healing and mutual liberation for all beings. And we've considered that psychedelic medicines like psilocybin, DMT, LSD, and so on, that they don't seem to produce any experience that a human being can't produce without them. Knowing as much as we can about our mind, heart, body, world, and cosmos before we work with the medicines of our world, without making the bar ridiculously high, but just saying... Can we really have something organized here? An organized training before we go to work with these medicines so that we can make room for a greater possibility to realize far more deeply, to see more deeply, to open up more of the potentials of these medicines to heal self and world at the same time. That's the part of our suggestion here. And we're talking about very well-validated trainings because they've been around for a very long time. And so they've been elaborated and they give us this picture of potentials and really actually even a picture of what a healthy mind might be because these sorts of things are in a way unheard of in the dominant culture. We really don't have organizing images of what a healthy mind and a healthy culture are and how we get to them. Here are the teachings and practices. This is the spiritual commons. We don't have it. So that's why this is so amazing that these things, they do exist in a spiritual commons that we could recognize. You could say there is one, but, but functionally it's not there, right? So, of course, we have these wisdom traditions and we're talking about a tradition where we have something we could draw from but we would have to see it as the spiritual commons that it is. And we'd have to say, let's have this spiritual commons, let's have this common ground so that we can empower ourselves and so that we have a vision of the possibilities for a healthy mind, healthy heart, healthy culture, healthy body, healthy world. So unfortunately, nowadays, we just sit around waiting for positive psychologists and social workers and neuroscientists to wave around some fragment from the wisdom traditions, as if they had just discovered it themselves, or purely by means of modern science that they discovered something, and they will tell us how to live well and how to be happy 
And meanwhile, we've got thousands of years of tradition around the world that already know a lot about these things and in a key way know them better because they know them more holistically than our social workers and positive psychologists and neuroscientists. And we're not trying to make fun of those people or demean their work because there are people working in all these fields, psychology, neuroscience, social work, medicine, and they sincerely and passionately try to help the world. And they really do have pieces that the wisdom traditions would say, oh yes, absolutely, that we can explain that here, but then we have this larger thing. So we're just saying, let's all join together and we can get more rigorous and more holistic, more integrated. If we want to help the world, then we've got some work to do and it's not just in a laboratory. And holism is challenging for us because of this context of fragmentation. That's why it has to become a f more of a focus, because we think we know what it means, but it's just a word. But if we turn to holistic philosophies of life and we start developing a holistic and skillful mind and culture, we'll start to change things. A skillful heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos will consistently do better than an unskillful one. And that includes in the sometimes intense context of our everyday lives and our medicine work. We owe it to ourselves, to each other, to the medicines that we value and the ecologies we all depend on. So if you do nothing else with this contemplation, with this whole series of contemplations, please try learning the basics of compassion practice, which includes the other immeasurables and Tonglen as well. In conclusion, on this topic, we should note here that Buddha taught compassion practice, the immeasurables, to his students who were afflicted by demons. Now he says that he, when he went into the woods, he already he had cultivated a mind of love, a mind of beauty, a mind of peace. So somehow he had cultivated these things himself, but he developed the practice whether it was the same way he did it or a, a, a different version, maybe he tweaks it, who knows. But the thing that he gave to his students, he gave it to some of them apparently because they were afflicted by demons. Now what does that mean? In Buddhist philosophy, a demon is ultimately anything that obstructs liberation. So that makes it psychological, metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical all at once because the tradition accepts non-human entities. We saw that in our first contemplation of the Buddha molecule, but the tradition also invites us to see demons as something like a symptom of suffering in our own soul and in the world at the same time sometimes. Now today, with our contemporary psychology, when we see someone with a certain experience or set of experiences, let's say we look at a certain constellation of experiences and we say, oh, that's trauma or that's PTSD, or complex PTSD. But we didn't invent trauma. The dominant culture has elaborated trauma in unprecedented ways. Nevertheless, some of Buddha's students would have experienced trauma. And then that gives you demons, doesn't it? And so they would have had difficulties that were severe enough that they were afflicted by demons. And he prescribed, as a soul physician, a physician of the soul, he prescribed compassion practice to help heal it. 
And today we find this verified, as we said, by our own science, that it really does heal. And that's part of the medicine we inherit from the wisdom traditions. Even mindfulness offers us medicine for trauma. And there's been confusion about that, but we have to return to that later. For now, let's close with a final acknowledgement of the common ground we tried to enter into and cultivate together. That is a spiritual commons in a way. And we really want to link it with the ecological commons. We want to see that there is an ecological common ground that we have to take care of and a spiritual common ground that we have to take care of and that they are totally interwoven. And that common ground then allows us to dissolve the barriers between us, to sense our mutuality and our interwovenness and liberate its creative potential. I think we should bring to a close, for now, our Philosopher's Guide to Working with the Medicines of Our World. We need to look further. We're not done. It's not just that we only scratch the surface, but long ago we noted that a holistic philosophy of life has to address three major dimensions of all our experience. What we do, how we do it, and why. Now, there are different ways to talk about the structure of experience, but that's one of them. And we have only scratched the surface on one of those. So we... We just began, we have to begin with what? We can't begin with, uh, we can't start with why. We have to start with what, because that includes ethics. And since the what, why, and how come totally interwoven, then we inevitably touched on all three in various subtle and obvious ways. But that leaves the other two to discuss. However, we really do need to take a break, because we've reflected a lot on this subject, and it's not the only I, I have tried to talk about the medicines of our world, even though this initially began out of a dialogue about psychedelic medicines. And But nevertheless, even though uh, we are very interested in the medicines of our world and healing self and world at the same time, we have a lot of other things that we need to reflect on. And so the nice thing is that if we shift into some other topics it will give this material time to germinate and it will support that germination with other things to contemplate. And so we'll start, I think, first by going uh, for some more interviews, some more dialogue, philosophical dialogue, which are something like an interview, but not totally. So we'll probably have some of those coming up. I did say I would mention a few extra resources if you'd like to learn more about compassion and Tonglen. And I know that Tonglen in particular, we didn't really talk about how to do either one of those, actually. And you need to know the practices. But you also need to know more of the philosophy, the fuller holistic philosophy. So the place to turn, the locus classicus for compassion, would be Shantideva. And he wrote this wonderful poem. It's, I mean, it's not weird, like a weird poem. Let me say, okay, there are two books that I used to use consistently to teach uh, the compassion trainings, both com- the, the Immeasurables and Tonglen. And one was a very contemporary book by Tupten Jinpa, and it's called A Fearless Heart. It's really good. Use that as a textbook, even for a logic course. And another one is by Shantideva. And in uh, at least one or two cases, I was able to have students read both of those books. And the interesting thing is that about half the students preferred Shantideva over the modern person, even though Shantideva wrote over a thousand years ago. 
So it's technically a poem, even though it's not like weird, like reading a Shakespearean sonnet. It's just that the thing is in, it's set in verse. So that actually makes it a shorter text. I think maybe that is one thing. It looks less intimidating because there's less words on each page. Um, but the, some of the students just really liked it. And I had them memorize some passages from Shantideva. And then Tupten Jinpa is, his book is about, it's a, you know, a book of our time. And it's about how Shantideva's teachings and the practices he's talking about got updated into a, a scientific presentation, you could say. I mean, there was nothing, it's not updated like the scientists had to change the practices, but it was about how do we present it in a way that's testable for science. And so then we can say, here we have this empirically validated practice. So that's what Jinpa actually participated in doing at Stanford University at the Sea Care Center. So A Fearless Heart is his discussion of it. And then there's Shantideva. But what I love about Shantideva is that he is, his book is about the, the path of the cosmic superhero. And that's what's so wonderful about it because he's inviting us. It's, it's the um, Bodhikaryavatara, which the, the, it's like a Bodhisattva is this enlightening being, but it's a cosmic superhero who, whose superpower, their superpower is ultimately wisdom, love, and beauty. It's the awakened, fully awakened mind and heart, which is a very cool superpower to have. I often think it's funny that we have all these superheroes and most of them have some kind of like aggressive power, like they're super strong, they're bulletproof, they're super fast. But we don't have Captain Karuna who just melts away the evildoer's evil intent. You know, like imagine if you had a superhero where instead of you had to fight the bad guy, Captain Karuna, Captain Compassion would just unleash the feeling of compassion in them. And they would say, oh my gosh, I was trying to take over the world, but there's all these beings, and I want to help them now. I love them all. So it would be, he would be the most powerful, or she would be. And actually, some of the cosmic superheroes are kind of gender, they're, they're non-dual. They include the whole thing. So anyway, um, the cosmic superhero path is a good one to walk, and Shantideva is a good guide. So it's a very helpful book and speaks to people across centuries, actually over a millennium, like 1,300 years ago. So the, uh, you can get different translations. B. Allen Wallace's is good um, and the Padmakar translation group. So uh, it's worth looking at. And then for Tonglen, Start Where You Are, Pema Chodron, I've used that as a, a textbook in different courses. And also uh, Chogyam Trungpa's Training the Mind. And the reason why you need the guides for the Tonglen is you will see that the slogans that you work with along with the Tonglen practice, that they need explanation. They really do need some, some unpacking. So we need teachings. We can't just think that we are going to become wise by simply doing a, a set of meditation practices. It's not that it's impossible, but Buddha himself was saying, hey, when I went and sat under that tree and became enlightened, I had already done all this compassion practice, this cultivation of the immeasurables, and this training of the mind. So he wasn't just any ordinary person walking and sitting under that tree. And we can start to have that kind of walk when we approach the medicines of our world. We can be walking in the footsteps of the Buddha, really, or whatever awakened being is our... He's just an archetypal image. I'm not saying we have to be Buddhists, like a religious conversion. It's an archetypal image of a person who woke up and realized their true nature and really became liberated and happy 
and compassionate and wise. And that works for whatever tradition we're from. If our tradition doesn't like wise, awakened, loving, compassionate, discerning, skillful people, then we might have to rethink what our tradition is about because I, I, I doubt that it's true. <laughs> I really think we all have traditions that can value that image. So it reaches out a- across the ages for us. That's part of what an archetype does, you know. Okay, so we'll see you next time for, I think we're going to do, we're going to have some philosophical dialogues next time. If you have any suggestions for people you'd like me to dialogue with, I'm open to them. Or if you have any questions, reflections, or stories to share about any of the medicines of the world or anything we've discussed here, please get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. You might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.